fucking great. We are today closing out uh, this book of Ruth that we're going through. You know, uh, Ruth is one of the only two books in the Bible written by a woman. You got Ruth and Esther. Ruth is the only book in the Bible written by a woman who's not a Jew. Esther is a, I mean, Ruth is a Moabite, Moabitess. And, and so it's a very significant book. And it's become like literally one of my favorite books because of the timely manner uh, in which we're going through it. And I'll talk about that in a moment. But it, it, it just absolutely screams, as you're gonna see today, as we close it out, it began in tragedy, it's going to end in triumph, right? It began in tragedy, it's going to end in triumph. That's why today we're calling this tragedy to triumph. And we all know stories of tragedy to triumph. You have them in your life. You've read stories. Victor Hugo, for instance. Victor Hugo is one of the, of the world's uh, literally most famous, uh, the greatest uh, romantic French poets of all time. Uh, he was banished, actually, from France by Napoleon in 1851. It was a tragedy to banish uh, one of their greatest poets, and he banished him. In 1851, he lived in Brussels for a while. He lived in uh, the Channel Islands for a while, and, and uh, he was banished, but when he finally returned to France, here's the great thing. Here's the triumph. He had written some of his greatest work in exile. It was a tragedy to had to go into exile, but he had written some of his greatest work, including The Hunchback of Notre Dame and my favorite uh, play, Les Miserables, while he was in exile. And when he come back, he said, why was I not banished earlier? Right? I mean, that's a great story of tragedy that ended in triumph. Then we all know the story of Helen Keller. I mean, it's probably the one of the most most well-known, famous stories of tragedy and triumph. Helen Keller was born deaf and blind, and we can't even imagine what that life would be like. It was obviously many tremendous obstacles in her path, but she didn't let her obstacles defeat her. She actually exclaimed that uh, she was thankful for her obstacles because through her obstacles is how she found her work, her purpose, and her God. That's an incredible story of tragedy to triumph, and that is exactly uh, the greatest way to describe the book of Ruth. It is an, a story uh, of tragedy, incredible tragedy. Uh, Naomi loses her husband, her two sons. Ruth loses her husband, incredible tragedy. And as we're gonna see today, it ends in triumph. That's why, because of the tragedy that I faced four and a half or so months ago, almost four and a half months ago, uh, this has become one of my favorite books of the Bible because it screams the best is yet to come. It screams that God will turn your tragedy into triumph. And with, no matter what you're going through right now, and here's the thing about tragedy and suffering, and I, I just wanna make sure you're aware of this, that when it comes to tragedy and when it comes to suffering, you're either in it right now, you're coming out of it, or you're going into it, okay? And that's sort of sobering to think about. But you're either suffering right now, you're coming out of suffering, or you're going into it. Uh, why do I say that? Man, that sounds, because we live in a world that's broken by sin, so suffering is a part of our life. It will be a part of your life uh, until you are uh, in heaven, if you are a child of God, with the Lord. And so when you are suffering, when, no matter what you're going through, here's, the, here's the, the real issue. When you know the best is yet to come, you have hope, right? When you are suffering, when you are in the midst of some uh, intense tragedy, when you believe what Paul said in Romans chapter eight, verse 28, that for those who love the Lord, uh, all things work together for good, when you know that, when you believe that, then you have hope. When you know that uh, no matter what you're going through, God will turn this tragedy into triumph, you have hope. 
That's why this book is one of my favorite books in this time in my life, because it gives me so much hope, because it screams God will turn tragedy into triumph. No matter what mistakes you've committed, no matter what sins you've committed, or no matter what sins have been committed against you, God will turn that tragedy into triumph. It is a promise from the Lord. He will turn it into a triumph. The best is yet to come. That's why I love this book. And uh, remember, chapter three left us with a cliffhanger, so to speak, right? I mean, Ruth had got all bedazzled up, gussied up, and went down to the threshing floor in the middle of the night to surprise Boaz. But she stayed in stealth mode. She was in the shadows and didn't let him see her. And she waited until after he had dinner and a few drinks. His heart was a little happy. And, and, he, and he went to bed and she followed him to see where he was going to lie down. And, and when he went to bed, after he had fallen asleep, Ruth sort of, uh, you know, snuck in in a very stealth mode, really gently uncovered his feet and laid down at his feet. Now, obviously, you can imagine if you are writing, reading a romance novel, you're thinking about what's about to happen. And you're, you're thinking, oh, yeah, well, Boaz wakes up. And he, he's like, wow, he's surprised to find a beautiful woman in his bed. And, and, you know, in the romance novel, he's like thinking, man, hey, I mean, wow, I've got a beautiful woman in my bed. I mean, how lucky am I? And he's like, man, she's single, I'm single. Uh, she's available, I'm available, uh, I'm willing. Obviously, she's willing. Nobody's gonna see, right? Wrong. God always knows and God always sees. And, and so, uh, but that's not, uh, the romance novel, right? This is, this is God giving us a pure version, a great version of how it should be, because she immediately shared her intentions before he could have any thoughts in his mind. She said, hey, hey, before, you know, when he woke up, she basically said, hey, before you go any further, I'm not here for a one-night stand. I'm here for a lifetime commitment. I'm not here for a night of pleasure. I'm here uh, for a covenant marriage, and, and then she went on and, you know, and she basically invoked the, the kinsman redeemer. She said, I, I want you to throw your, spread your wings over me and redeem me. And what she was doing was she was invoking the kinsman redeemer principle, which is basically saying, I, I'm here for not a one night stand, but a husband, but not just a husband just to make me happy. It's, this is not just about me getting married because I always want to be married. It's not just about me having a future. This is about Naomi having a future. This is not just about my happiness, but Naomi's happiness. This is about something so much bigger. And if we will understand marriage is about something so much bigger, our whole perspective will change and our marriage will begin to change. It's not just about our happiness. It's not just about what it can give us. It's not just about, you know, giving us a future. It's about something so much more. And so there's so many principles we can learn from here. So, you know, when she says that, uh, we're getting ready to see whether he's got one of those fears of commitment, right? I mean, you know, ladies, uh, some, some guys have this extreme fear of commitment. I mean, and he's gonna run for the border. He's gonna jet. He's gonna jet. He's out of here, right? Uh, what's he gonna do, man? He, he doesn't freak out. He doesn't run for the border. As soon as she said, I want you to be our redeemer, spread your wings over uh, me, he praises her. He doesn't freak out and run for the border. He praises her for her commitment and what she's doing here. He praises her for her character and her purity, and he says, I would be honored to be your husband, to be your redeemer, but we have a little issue. You see, the issue we have is I'm not next in line. I, I, there's one before me, right? And so he said, and I wanna do 
the right thing, the right way always, and so we have to take care of this. I can't uh, go behind his back, and I can't do it under the table, on the down low. We've got to do this the right way, and so you stay here tonight because I don't want you going out. You might be attacked by wild animals or by robbers or thieves. It's dangerous, and I don't want your reputation to be harmed because you leave a man's uh, you know, bed in the middle of the night. I don't want your reputation to be harmed. You stay here tonight, and in the morning, I promise you, I will take care of this. So what he basically did, he promised her that in the morning, she's going to have a ring on her finger. Now, he knew someone was going to Jared. He just didn't know if it was him or the dude, right? And so, so man, the next morning, he wakes up, and he jets. He, he bypasses Starbucks. He's in a hurry. I mean, he makes a beeline because he's got some business to take care of. He makes a beeline to the city gate to find this dude and take care of business. Listen, he's practicing a principle that I teach my kids. I taught my older boys. Uh, I teach my teenagers, and that's this. You, you don't date for fun. You do not date for fun. Why do you date, right? You, you don't date just to have a good time and fun. When you date for fun, that's when you get in trouble. You don't date for fun. Why do you date? You date to find a mate. That's the purpose of dating. You date to find a mate, not to just have fun. And so that's true, and that being true, here's what you do, okay? When you know, and this is what I taught my boys, this is what I teach my kids, when you know, when you're dating a girl, guys, and you know this is the one I can't live without her. I can't imagine my life without her. I don't want to. This is the one. As soon as you know that, man, you put a ring on it, right? You put a ring on it. As soon as you know, guys, hold on a minute, man. This this girl's nice. This girl's cool. This girl's good. But I'm not going to spend the rest of my life with her. That's when you bounce, right? I mean, you, you eject, you get out of there because at that point, you're just gonna get in trouble. You're just asking for trouble when you continue to date knowing this is not who I'm gonna marry. Why? You don't date for fun, you date for mate. Ladies, same for you. Man, when you know this guy, ain't no way I'm spending the rest of my life with this guy. And when, you, when that happens, you tell him to kick rocks. I mean, right? I mean, uh, you can do it nicer than that, but you, you, you don't date for fun. And so I love this. And, and, and because he's practicing this principle. He goes immediately. He wakes up. I'm taking care of it. I'm not waiting. I'm not waiting until after lunch. I'm not going to call him when I get a spare second. I'm taking care of this now, right? And so, so he goes to the city gate. The city gate is a very important part of the city. You had to go through the city gate to do anything or to go anywhere. It was a central hub, so to speak. It was the place where business took place. It was where commerce, it wasn't just like a gate like in your backyard. It was a wide, massive, it had, it was commerce and business. It was basically your city hall and your courthouse all in one right there at the city gate. And so Boaz shows up at the city gate knowing that this next in line redeemer will at some point during the day, he will come through here. So he goes and sits down and lo and behold, as soon as he sits down, there he is. I mean, man, he gets set down and sees the dude. And so it's like, how lucky is this dude? I mean, you know, I'm thinking like I'm going to the DMV to get my driver's license. I'm going to be here for hours, right? He's like, no, he sits down. Bam, here's the dude. He's lucky. No, he's not lucky. He's not lucky at all. God is directing the steps the entire way. You see, God is in control of where this man is. God's in control of where Boaz is. God's in control of your life. He's in control of Ruth's life and Naomi's life. He's in control of your life. You're here today because God controlled your steps. That's why you're here today and not asleep because you missed an hour of sleep last night. God has you here. You're watching online from wherever in the world, and man, we're thankful, but we know that God directed your steps to watch online. No matter how you saw it, no matter how you come across it, you may watch every week, you may just have seen someone's feed, 
but you're watching because God directs your steps. God directs your steps. When you thought, man, that you had that issue five years ago, 10 years ago, and you had no clue where it come from, but it hit you with a left hook, God was in control of that. God's in control of all your steps. So he led this dude at the exact time Boaz shows up, and Boaz goes and grabs him and said, hey, we need to have a conversation. Let's go over and sit down. The dude says, all right. He comes and sits down, and Boaz grabs 10 elders and says, hey, I need you guys to be witness of this conversation in case there's a dispute that breaks out in the future. And they say, cool. So they go, and they sit down, and so Boaz then breaks into the story. He tells dude what's going on. He says, hey, man, uh, uh, hey, hey, dude, listen, here's what's going on. We have a relative, Elimelech. Elimelech's dead. His two sons, uh, Melon and Chilion, dead. So you got Naomi, and Naomi, you know, has this property that belonged to Elimelech that's passed down through his ancestors by the tribal, you know, what they inherited, and it needs to stay in the family. I mean, that was important in Israel. Uh, the land and the name need to stay in the family. It's very important. And he said, so she now is destitute. She's broke as a joke. She can't have, she has no uh, rice and beans. She doesn't have uh, any ramen noodles in the kitchen. She has nothing. So she's going to have to get rid of her property. We want it to stay in the family. So the, the, so the inheritance of the tribal property stays in the family. So you're next in line. You're the redeemer who's next in line. So if you want this property, you need to proclaim it today. If not, let me know, and I'm going to redeem this property. And the dude thinks, and he says, this is a no-brainer. This is an incredible investment opportunity because I get the field, I get the profits from the field, and all he had to do from that, as they grew crops and he would get all the profits, all he had to do from that is take care of Naomi out of those profits. And he's thinking, and she's a widow, and she's an old widow. That probably won't be long. This is an incredible investment opportunity. I only have to take care of her for a little while. And then I've got the field and the property for, for the rest of my time. This is no brand. I'm in. I'm all in. And then Boaz dropped a bomb, right? You know that, that feeling you have when you hear about a deal and you think, it's too good to be true? It's always too good to be true, right? It generally is. If it sounds that way, it is. So Boaz said, great, cool. And, you know, if we're watching a movie right here, when he said, I want it, everybody's like, oh, because we're all pulling for Boaz, right? I mean, we're pulling for this dude. And, and, and so, so he says, I want it. And Boaz says, well, here's the deal. He says, when you get the field, you also get Ruth the Moabitess, who is Naomi's daughter-in-law, married to Malon, her son, who's also dead. And so when you get the field, you get her, you're her redeemer. And so you provide an heir, the first son that that you and her, the first child that you and her have, becomes Malon's uh, uh, heir and will inherit the field. And now at that point, everything changed. That changed everything. The dude said, whoa, 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 back up, back up, back up. So now he's thinking, before, I'm, I'm, I'm getting the field and the profits, and all I got to do is take care of an old widow, and she's probably going to die in a few years. Hey, man, I'm in. But now I get the field, the profits, but I have to take care of a widow. I have to take care of Ruth. I have to take care of an heir, a, a, a child that's born, and then the child's going to inherit it. And what my kids, their, their inheritance, I, this is going to cost me money. It's a horrible investment. I'm out. You can have it. Now, notice the contrast between these two guys. Boaz, man, Boaz is famous. Everybody knows Boaz. Everybody knows, but you've heard of Boaz. Everybody knows he's famous. Dude, I've been calling him dude. Why? That's basically what the Bible calls him, so-and-so, no name. We don't even know his name. Look at these two dudes. Boaz, the dude was only interested as long as it was good for his bottom line, as long as it, he got something out of it. 
right? As long as it was good for him, he's in. But when it's not good for him, it's not good for his bottom line, dude's out. Boaz, he, he, he wasn't thinking about the bottom line. He's thinking about, his, as, as Larry read, uh, he's thinking about perpetuating the name of Malon and Elimelech, right? He's thinking about someone else. He's not thinking about himself. He's not thinking about what he's gonna get out of it. He's thinking about how he's gonna bless someone out of it. What does this teach us? Here's another principle. Here's another observation. Listen, if you want a legacy, if you want your name to last, if you want a good name, then don't live for yourself, live for other people. I mean, that's what we see right here, right? You want a legacy? Sure you do. Then be, be, be willing to take huge risk for the kingdom of God. Don't live for yourself, live for other people. That's what we see Boaz as he is just committed to someone else, not his own benefit, what he gets, but living for the, for the good of other people. And look, that's God's economy. That's math in the kingdom of God. Math in the kingdom of God is like, you know, hey, look, you, you, you surrender to victory. Typically, we surrender to defeat. We surrender in the kingdom of God to victory. We give, uh, man, we get more than we give. That, that's, that's just not the world's math. The world's math is you give away and you lose. God's like, you give and you get. Learn from Boaz. That this is, you want a legacy, then live for other people and not yourself. And so when this happens, the dude takes off his sandal and he gives it to Boaz. Now, you, you read that and you're like, what in the world is going on with the whole sandal thing? Why is the sandal? I mean, listen, if you and I do a deal, I buy, I buy a car from you, you can keep your Birkenstock. I don't want it, right? I mean, please keep your Birkenstock. So what, what's the whole sandal? Well, it, this was a custom. It was a symbol. It was a custom and it was a symbol. It was like it was even said that day, if someone acquired a, acquired a piece of property from someone, the old owner would like, uh, step his foot on the land and then take it off and put the other person's foot on the land. And it was like to set your foot on something meant to own something, right? And here we're even told in scripture that this was a symbol. It was a custom, whereas uh, he was relinquishing his right to something. He was transferring ownership to someone else. And so in, when giving him his sandal, he was basically saying, I relinquish my right of redeemer to Naomi and Ruth to you. You have now, tra I've transferred uh, ownership, ability to you. And so when he gave him his sandal, Boaz looked at the elders and said, you guys have seen it. This is a legal transaction. It is signed. When he gave me the sandal, it is signed, sealed, and delivered. You guys are the notaries, and this is a legal transaction. Everything that belonged to Elimelech and Malon and Chilion now belongs to me, including Ruth. And the elders, we agree. It's a done deal. Uh, it, it can't be reversed. He did the right thing the right way, and he knows now what God's will is in this whole thing, right? And, and so, so then the elders, they, they, they bless. They, they say a blessing over. They speak words of blessing over uh, Ruth and over Boaz. And man, they, they, they want Ruth to be blessed and may their offsprings be fertile and fruitful as, as Leah and Rachel. And it's like, listen, who is Leah and Rachel? These are the mothers of Israel. It's their sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. These are significant leaders. These are significant offsprings. So the elders are saying, man, we, we bless you. They speak words of blessing. Speaking words of blessing over your kids, so many observations are, are so important to speak words of blessing over them. They speak words of blessing, and they say, we hope your offsprings, may your offsprings become significant. May they become significant. May they become leaders. May they be world-renowned. Uh, and, and listen, as soon as they are on their honeymoon, this comes true. Man, it's like their honeymoon, she gets pregnant. 
I mean, they get married, and again, like, uh, he, he acquires her. They get married. I mean, it's not like, there's no long engagement. Why? Why are you going to have a long engagement? To get the proper venue? That's when you get in trouble. Man, they have, they don't, bam, he, he gets married, and, and it's like on their honeymoon, bam, she gets pregnant. Now, notice, she was in Moab. She married Malon. Malon was Elimelech's son. She married Malon, and they were married for 10 years, and the the lady didn't get pregnant. She didn't conceive for 10 years. They get married on their honeymoon, bam. What what, what is that? It's God. It's God who's in control. God kept her from from conceiving in Moab. Now God has, has, has caused her to conceive because God is in charge of everything because it's his story he's writing. And when, and, 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 and Ruth, I'm sure when she was in Moab not conceiving, she was heartbroken because she wanted a child uh, in that culture, especially for the, and for the heir. And, and, and so she had no clue God is working. She was in the midst of that tragedy and had no clue that God is working. He's always working. He's always working. She couldn't conceive for 10 years and bam, she marries Boaz because God is in control of of conception. He's in control of birth. He's in control of life. Folks, he's in control of death. God is in control of every circumstance, of everything. How can I say that? That's the only way that God could promise us that he will work everything out for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. That's the only way he could promise that because he's in control of everything. Whatever tragedy you're in right now or 10 years ago, whatever you went through, God's in control of that. And it might be holding you back. You might not yet realize what it was all about, but God was in control of that. Trust that God is in control, that he can turn the tragedy from 10 years ago into a triumph the tragedy you're going through right now, the suffering you're going through, the best is yet to come. Trust that. That's what we see. And so Ruth gives birth to a child, and, 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 and here is what's amazing. She gives birth to a child, and, and, and man, after the son is born, the focus really, if you notice, shifts from Ruth and Boaz and their son to grandma and her grandson. It shifts to Naomi. The women bring the baby to Naomi, and she takes the baby and puts it on her lap, and she nurses the baby. And he, why? Why does the, all of a sudden the focus shift from Boaz and Ruth and, and baby to grandma and grandson? Why? Because I think it's making a point here. It's reminding us that Naomi <coughs> came back to Israel empty and bitter. She thought her life was over. She didn't have an heir. Now she's full, and she's happy. Her tragedy has turned to triumph. And the writer is letting us know that the best is yet to come. See, folks, the best is yet to come. Hang on, whatever you're in, because the best is yet to come. Whatever you're in, I know you can be hopeless, but God can turn that tragedy into triumph. Hang on. Now, there are so many observations here. There's so many observations. I just simply want to point out two. I've already pointed out several in the midst of it. I just want to point out two and camp out on two for just a moment uh, because you can learn so much as we close this out. One is ruin to redeem. I want you to think about ruin to redeem. We see two women who are ruined and they become redeemed. Naomi and Ruth are ruined. They are doomed. They're widows. And the only way a widow is taken care of in Israel in that day and age, in any culture in that day and age, was their family took care of them. They had no family. 
There was no social security. There was no widow's benefits. There was no way for them to make a living. They had no food. They had nothing. They're doomed. They're ruined. You have Naomi coming home. Then you have Ruth, who's a Moabitess, coming to live as an immigrant in a land that hated her people because of what they had done. So she's coming. Not only is she going to be a destitute widow, she's going to be a destitute widow that everybody jeers at, sneers at, looks down on, and tramples. But because of her commitment to Naomi, she's willing to endure all that. They're ruined. They're redeemed unless a redeemer come into their life. And, and, and that's exactly what happened. Wham. She, they come to Israel thinking their life's over. That's what Naomi says. Don't call me, Ma, don't call me Naomi, sweetheart. Call me Mara bitter. My life's over. My future's been stripped away. I'm empty. I went away full. I'm empty. I'm bitter. They're thinking my life's over. My future's been stripped away. They had no clue that God had already planned it and worked it out. Boaz was just around the corner, and they didn't know it. The Redeemer. The Redeemer. And Ruth would get a husband, and Naomi would get an heir. But really, that's that's not what this whole story is all about. Yes, it is about Ruth getting a husband and Naomi getting an heir, but it's about so much more. It's about Israel getting her greatest king and about us getting our Redeemer. You see, like Ruth and like Naomi, all of us are ruined. All of us were ruined. We're doomed. <clears throat> Here's what the Bible says. The Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible says that the wage of sin is death. God told Adam and Eve all the way back in Genesis, when you eat of it, you will surely die. When he told them not to eat of the fruit, of uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now notice he said when. It wasn't God said, oh, don't eat that tree, and then he's going to step back, and I hope they don't, and wonder if they will. No, God said, when you eat of it, because he's in control, you will die. The wage of sin is death, and we've all sinned. We're all separated from God. There's nothing we can do about it. That We're ruined, folks. It leaves us empty. That leaves us empty. It leaves us uh, lacking. It leaves our future stripped away. It leaves us enslaved and captive to sin. Uh, we are ruined people. And, and here's the thing. It's been that way since birth. David said, I was born and I was conceived in iniquity. In other words, at my conception, when life began, when my, when my life began in my mother's womb, I was a sinner. And I was separated from God because I inherited that sin gene from my mama. That's what he said. I'm ruined. The Bible says we're all ruined. We're all doomed unless a redeemer steps in. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus, you see, Boaz points to Jesus. Jesus is the redeemer who stepped in. Boaz went to the city gate. Boaz wasn't interested in his bottom line. He wasn't interested in what he got out of it. He was interested in two women and what they got out of securing a future for them. Jesus left the splendor and glory of heaven. He wasn't interested in what's best for him. He was interested in what's best for those who don't know him, those who are dead, those who are doomed, those who are ruined. And he left the splendor of heaven to come to this earth. Boaz went to the city gate. He made a legal transaction. Jesus, just outside the city gate of Jerusalem, made a legal transaction when he gave his life. When he gave his life, uh, he didn't give a sandal. He gave his life and said, I am redeeming those who, like Ruth, asked me to be their redeemer. 
You see, when Jesus died on that cross, when Jesus died just outside the city gate, it was a legal transaction saying, their sin debt is canceled. I paid it in full. And when he come out of the grave, it was signed, sealed, and delivered. It's done. Jesus said, it is finished. It's done. It's over, right? But it, it's not for everybody. That's, that's called universalism. And that's, most people in our world are functional universalists, right? Meaning that most people believe people go somewhere good, right? Heaven. I mean, that's why everybody, when, man, you've never heard anybody, you know, anybody have a family member die and say, well, uh, oh, 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 papa, boy, he's rotten in hell. I hate that. I, I mean, he's in a horrible place right now. You never hear people just come up and say, well, he's in a horrible place. No, everybody says, oh, he's in a better place. I mean, he lived like hell, but he's in heaven, I guess, right? He's in a better place. Everybody's in a better place. No, they're not. It's not what the Bible says. Everybody's not in a better place. See, that's called functional universalism. And what this says is, who's in a better place? Those whom Jesus redeems. Who does he redeem? Not everyone. He redeems those who, like Ruth, ask Boaz. He redeems those who ask him, Jesus, be my redeemer. Today, wherever you're watching right now, whatever, coffee house, whatever, your house, wherever you are watching, in the room today, you are ruined, but you can be redeemed. You can move from ruin to redeemed, just like Naomi, just like Ruth, by just asking Jesus to be your redeemer. That's really what this story is all about. And I know what some of you are saying. <clears throat> some of you are saying, well, I, Pat, not me. I've done too much. Man, I've turned my back on God. I've done too much. God can, man, he can't love me. He won't love me. God hates me. God's ashamed of me. God, God, God turns, I mean, no, no way. Really? Well, I want you to take note. and I want you to see how this story ends. It's beautiful how the story ends. How does it end? It ends by giving us a genealogy. And, and I know that, you know, most of us don't think that's significant. Genealogy is the part we sort of check out on, right? I mean, we skip the genealogies. They're so important. And, and, and this book ends with giving us a genealogy. But although the book ends with giving us a genealogy, that's not the end of the story. You see, you have to skip a thousand years into the future and go to Matthew chapter one to another genealogy, the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter one, verse five. And look at what it says. And Salmon, this is in uh, genealogy in Matthew 1, 5. And Salmon, the father of Boaz, who we've been talking about, by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. Now, you can go on, but here's the point. I, I'm stopping there because here's the point I want to make. Notice who Boaz's mother is. We've been talking about Boaz and Ruth and Naomi. And Bo Notice who Boaz's mother is. Rahab. Rahab. Now, who was Rahab? And if you don't know, Rahab was this fine, upstanding royalty. I mean, she was literally just wealthy royalty. Everybody looked up to her. She was born into the palace. That was, no, 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 that's not Rahab. Rahab lived in the red light district. Why would she live in the red light district? Because she was a prostitute. She was a prostitute. This was Boaz's mama. She was a prostitute in Jericho. And when Israel goes to take Jericho, she helped the spies. Why? Because she believed in Israel's God. She was ruined. Everybody in Jericho died except Rahab and her family. She was ruined until she was redeemed. 
And she, this prostitute that wasn't, listen, was not a Jew. She was a Gentile. She was a prostitute. And because of what she did and believed, God saved her. She was incorporated into Israel and became the father of Boaz, who became the father of Obed, who became the father of Jesse, who became the father of King David, whom Jesus, a thousand years later, 700 years, would come in. Wow. I mean, now think about this. Rahab was Boaz's mother. Wow, it kind of sort of begins to make sense how out of all the men in Israel, Boaz would look at a, an immigrant, someone that was not a Jew, someone that was hated, and have compassion on her, doesn't it? Do you think Boaz's mother and how she grew up influenced him? Oh, I do. So important how we influence our kids. And so Boaz, he, he was influenced by growing up with an immigrant prostitute mama. Now he's got a Moabite wife. It's beautiful. And, and get this, who's a prostitute? I mean, look, at if you go on and read the, 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 the genealogy there, here's what it's got in it. It's, it's got a, a prostitute who is uh, Rahab. It's got uh, uh, Tamar, who, who, is, who is Tamar. She slept with Judah pretending to be a prostitute. It's got Bathsheba, who, you know, her and whole, whole David thing. The men are, are in, 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 the, in, in the genealogy aren't any better. You've got Judah. He's the one who slept with Tamar uh, thinking she was a prostitute. Then you've got David who seduces Bathsheba. King David, man after God's own heart, seduces Bathsheba and then finds out she's pregnant, she's married, and so he's the king. Do whatever he wants. What's he do? Just kill his husband, kill her husband. I'll take care of the problem. He committed adultery and then he committed murder. They're all in Jesus' genealogy. You think you're too far gone? You think you've done something that God can't redeem? I mean, that's not our God. That's not the God of the Bible. Think about Jesus. Jesus lived his life and he's called, you know what, you know, you know what they call him? A friend of sinners. The religious people did that uh, basically to jeer him. They called him the friend of sinners. He hung out with those sinners. Matter of fact, they called him a drunk. Jesus, did Jesus drink wine? You bet he did. Did he ever get drunk? No. No, he, he did not get drunk. But did he drink wine? You bet he did. And he went to parties where they were drinking wine and getting drunk. And, 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 and because he went to parties where they were drinking wine and getting drunk, oh, the religious people said, oh, look at him. He's over there drinking. He's drunk. He, Jesus, he's having a good time. He don't love the Lord. He's having too much fun. Isn't that crazy religious people think that way? I mean, they really do. I mean, they call him a drunk. They call him a friend of sinners. They call him a glutton because he was happy. You know, Jesus went to those parties and he was laughing. It's hard to think about, you know, he was laughing because he loved people. He loved being around sinners. And here's the thing. He lived his life around sinners. He said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor. It's the sick. And when he died, where did he die? Oh, on the cross, on the hill. Where? Between two what? Sinners. At the end, he was between two sinners. Folks, you're not too far gone. Listen, you've not done anything that's going to make God say, mm, you're dirty, low down. I, I'm not doing anything. No. You know who he redeems? Oh, you're ruined. You know who he redeems? Those who like Bo Ruth. Ask him to be the redeemer. That's all you need to do. Crazy, I know, but that's all you need to do. And you too can go from ruined to redeemed. Today might be your day. And then finally, the second 
The second observation that I want to point out, camp out on for just a moment, ruin to redeemed and second tragedy to triumph. Tragedy to triumph. David Platt, who's a friend of mine, he's a pastor of a church just outside of Washington, D.C. in Virginia. He says that Ruth is proof that God brings his people from life to death, curse to blessing, bitterness to happiness, emptiness to fullness, despair to hope, and I would add to that tragedy to triumph. Think about it. Think about this for a moment. This book begins with three funerals. Elimelech, Malon, Chilion. It began with three funerals. It ends with a marriage and a birth. Think about it. It begins with Naomi experiencing the curse of being a widow with no heir. It, it, it ends with her being blessed with an heir that'd be the grandfather of King David. It starts with Naomi saying, I'm a bitter old lady. Don't call me sweetheart. You call me bitter. I'm a bitter old lady. And it ends with her being one of the happiest women on the face of the earth. It begins with Naomi saying, I'm empty. God's, I went away full and God brought me back empty. I'm empty. And it ends with her being so full. It, end, it began with her having nothing. It ends with her having everything. It began with hopelessness and pain. But it ends not by looking back on the painful past, but by looking forward to the hope of an incredible future. Tragedy, triumph, that's this story. That's why it's one of my favorite books of the Bible right now. Because no matter what you've gone through, no matter what you've done, no matter what mistakes you've made, no matter what sins you've committed, no matter what sin have been committed against you, no matter what suffering you've gone through and tragedy you've experienced or may be experiencing right now at this moment, no matter where you are, God is able to bring you from death to life, from curse to blessing, from bitterness to happiness, from emptiness to fullness, from despair to hope, and from tragedy to triumph. I believe that. In our darkest moments, in our darkest moments, when we feel our future has been stripped away. We must remember that God is for us, not against us. In our darkest moments, we must remember that God is plotting for our good and for his glory when I can't feel it, when I can't see it, when I can't understand it. We must remember that. That's why I love this book, because it screams best is yet to come. It screams tragedy to triumph. When Amy died a little over four and a half months ago, it was the darkest moment of my life. It was the worst moment of my life. My future had been stripped away. I couldn't see it, and I can't see it. It didn't make sense. It won't make sense ever. It seemed unfair, to be honest. It was painful. I was empty. I was hopeless. And if I'm honest with you, I just wanted to quit. Didn't want to preach again. My future had been stripped away, and I couldn't understand it. Oh, but God, God is so good. 
God began to carry my grief and he began to carry me and he began to help me to see. And as, as, as lucky as, 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 oh, as, as we're just so lucky that we're planning to go through the book of Ruth. You know, luck to it. I believe God had us planned to go through this book to show me, Pat, in your darkest moment, I'm there. You never know what's around the corner. I'm there. I will turn this tragedy into triumph. The best is yet to come, Pat. Hang on. And even though I don't know how, I know God. And I believe him. And when his word says, for those who love the Lord, all things, including the death of your wife, work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. I believe that. That's a promise from God. Because it's a promise from God, I know this tragedy will turn to triumph. I know the best is yet to come. A couple of weeks ago, Haley, Travis's wife, sent me a song. One of his good friends, Mitch Wong, wrote a song. And Haley immediately sent it to me. Said, I thought of you as soon as I read, as soon as I, I listened to this song, and it's just been released. And it has absolutely ministered to me. And it, it I listened to it. And I, I, in all honesty, I can't listen to it without weeping. But I wanted Travis to sing it for you today. I said, Travis, can you learn this song? Because I think it, Travis and Macklin, because it is a perfect ending to this series because it screams tragedy to triumph. It speaks of how the best is yet to come and the tragedy will turn to triumph. So I listen to this song continually right now and I want you to listen to it because some of you are just where I am. Some of you have lost someone. Some of you have lost someone recently. Some of you might have lost someone 10 years ago and you're still trouble, ha- having trouble dealing with it. You're still sort of trying to dig out of it and it's still hanging over you. Maybe it's another tragedy that you've experienced I want you to listen to this song because you're either suffering right now or you're coming out of it or going into it because of sin. And I want you to have things and truths to hang on to. So I don't want you to sing. I just want you to sit and listen. Read the lyrics as Travis and Macklin sing this over you. Let it minister to you and see how it screams. The best is yet to come, and God will turn your tragedy into triumph.